At this time, I will dismiss the children to Children's Church. Miss Amy's over there to your right, and she is ready for the kids. I will say, I'm sure you are grateful. Early in the week, I received a text message from Daly uh, asking if I would help lead that song that they started with this morning, but I had a feeling that she meant that for Mike Rhodes. And she did. Uh, so you did not have to listen to me up here singing that, but uh, we celebrate uh, the message that has been shared. In fact, Daly did not know some of the direction where we are going today, and that last song probably didn't fit with what I had given her, but it sure fits with where the Lord has led this week. An 18-year-old has grown up in the church. He's been taught all the basics of Christianity, but the moment that he leaves home, he leaves the church. A husband and a wife have become involved in the life of a local church. It's a good church, but in the midst of a marital dispute, the church doesn't know how to respond. The result is that over time, both the husband and wife will ease out of weekly worship. Another parent has prayed for God to bless them with a child, and he finally does. They remain a faithful part of the church for years, but then the child becomes involved with travel ball that takes them out of church for most Sundays. Eventually, church becomes something that they do only on certain holidays. In each of those three scenarios, it is likely that those who attend have already heard that Jesus is the only way to salvation. In fact, that is the message that you will hear today. But the real problem isn't that all, the real problem is that although they have heard the academic presentation of this truth, they have likely not truly experienced the resurrected Jesus for themselves. It's not to say that they've never had a passing encounter with him. But rather, that is to say they have not had a real personal encounter with him. If they had, there's nothing that could convince that 18-year-old that Jesus was less than enough. There's nothing that could convince that couple to go anywhere but to Jesus and to the church in the midst of a family crisis. And those parents would know that no sport or activity could ever fulfill the needs that are met within a faithful church family. Some of you right now are thinking, well, you've kind of blanket statemented all these people, and it's not fair, but let me, let me ask you this. If you have someone that you love dearly, and you see them wandering away from you, won't you do whatever it takes to be there for them, to connect with them, to remain with them, if your spouse began to separate themselves from you and you loved them dearly, wouldn't you do everything possible to maintain that relationship? Shouldn't it be the same when it comes to our relationship with Christ and his church? The issue is not academic. The issue is experience. Have you experienced the resurrected Jesus this morning? I assure you that when you do, it will change everything for you. Every once in a while, I think it is important for us to be reminded of who we are as a church. And today, I'd like to share just a little bit with you. The theme verse of our church comes from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which poses an important question. And what does the Lord require of you? 
The verse goes on to answer that question, declaring that the Lord expects us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Three things that are incredibly important. Acting justly means doing what is right according to God's law. It means holy living, being people of integrity, regardless of who is watching or regardless of what others may have deemed to be acceptable. We do things because that's what God's law requires of us, act justly. The second part of that was loving mercy. This is addressing the fact that we need to go beyond just keeping our list of do's and don'ts. This is about us developing a heart like God. When you see the brokenness of others, you do something about it. You care about the people that are around you. If there is the opportunity to bring healing where there is hurting, then you do it. The sad thing is that many people in the church will often choose which one they want, acting justly or loving mercy, and never shall the two cross paths. But the truth is that God expects both from us. We must live holy lives, but we also must demonstrate concern for the people who are hurting around us. And finally, walking humbly with our God means that we need to get out of the driver's seat. We need to be willing to let the Lord lead us, to let him interrupt our daily lives. And whatever he tells us to do, we must be obedient. I would suggest to you that if we would apply all three of these things to our daily lives, then we would likely be a changed people. It would affect us in our workplaces, in our homes, and even in the church. I don't want you to raise your hands, but I do wonder how many of you are living according to these three things. If you've got all kinds of junk going on in your life, do you think that part of it could be because you are not doing some of these things? It's not a statement of judgment, but it's a realization. Or maybe you're wondering what kind of difference your life is actually making. Does my life matter? I assure you that if you are acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly before your God, then your life will matter. You will be touching the lives of others. You will be an instrument of hope and peace like you've never even imagined. So if you don't have one already, this is the theme verse of the church. Maybe consider making Micah 6.8 your life verse. Let it guide your every decision. And we'll continue to try to do the same thing as a church. Last Sunday, I shared a little bit about John 3.16. I know everyone in here probably could quote it because you've heard it for years. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's a beautiful verse that brings hope to so many. But to tell you the truth, it's also a little bit concerning for two separate reasons. First, the fact that Jesus had to be given. In other words, he had to die on a cross on our behalf. The fact that Jesus had to be given suggests that there is a death penalty that comes out of sin. We talked about that last week already. But the second reason for concern is the fact that although Jesus came to redeem all of humanity, there is an exclusive nature to what he does. Think about it. For God so loved the world, that's everybody, but only those who believe in him 
or receive the gift of salvation. Unfortunately, that does not mean everybody. The sad reality is that there will be many who will not believe in Jesus Christ, which means they will not receive eternal life. Oh, sure, there may be many who have a head knowledge of God's existence. They may believe that Jesus existed and that he is a real person. But when John says believe, he's talking about more than just mental agreement. He's talking about belief enough to act on it. I've said it before, but I can tell you today that I believe that this chair, this stool will hold me up. But until I'm actually willing to sit on it, that belief is nothing more than useless information. I am so glad it didn't collapse when I sat on it. It's happened before, not in the pulpit, but it has happened before. The point is, there are many who say they believe, but if it does not cause them to act, then what good was that belief? It's just useless knowledge. Well, the reality is that many will not believe. And according to John 3:16, only those who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So there's an exclusive nature to this statement. In fact, it echoes what Jesus says in John 14, verses 6 through 9. Listen to it for a moment. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Again, this sounds pretty exclusive. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, before I get too deeply into this, let me point out something that relates to last week's message. Last week, we started a series entitled, uh, There Can Be Only One, and we're pointing out to the fact that there is only one. There's one God, and in today's case, there is one way, and of course, we're going to look later at one church, but at this point, last week, I started with a story about a man who kept asking a question. Y'all remember? He was in the airport. Anyone remember what his question was? Don't you know who I am? found it interesting that Jesus is basically saying the same thing. If you really know me, then you know the Father. And then Philip asked to see the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? In other words, do you know who I am? You know, I've been talking about what it really means to believe in the fact that it's more than just a head knowledge thing. Well, here we have one of Jesus' followers who has a head knowledge of Jesus. I mean, this guy is walking and talking with Jesus. He's basically living with them as they travel, but it seems that he is still not getting it. And I wonder if there aren't those who attend church every week who know that Jesus is real, that he is the Son of God, that he lived 2,000 years ago and died for our sins, yet they do not realize that he is still relevant to us today, that our belief in him has to be more than just a head knowledge, but something that causes us to act. This is where I begin this morning. We know from an academic standpoint 
but we must have a transforming encounter with Jesus. Well, in verse 6 of what I just read, Jesus makes three statements regarding who he is and what he does. And I want to take a brief look at all three of them this morning. The first thing that he says is, I am the way. In passing, I mentioned this last week that there are many who would suggest that there are other ways, many different ways to get to heaven, that there are many paths, but Jesus suggests otherwise. He says he is not a way, but he says, I am the way. Sadly, in our culture, there are many who like this Jesus. It's not sad that they like Jesus, but they like a form of Jesus. They like the tradition that is associated with Christianity. They remember back to their childhood, their grandparents or their parents who claim to be Christians. They remember going to church and all of that. They also love the heart that is clearly present in Jesus. I mean, think about it. This guy continually gave of himself to meet the needs of others. He was filled with incredible compassion, even for those who opposed him. And as such, they will even quote many of the things that he said when it is convenient to whatever their agenda is for that moment. Statements like, love your enemies, judge not. Those are things Jesus actually said. Let me suggest that this quote, I am the way, is one that rarely gets any attention. In fact, it is on this quote that many will reject the very teachings of Jesus Christ. Remember that they liked all of his other stuff, but now he's gone too far. And here's the thought. Are you telling me that a good person who helps all kinds of people and never hurts anyone, are you telling me that if he does not believe in Jesus, that he will not inherit eternal life? Well, according to Jesus, that is correct. It is a sad reality. There will be many good people who will one day wake up in hell. I'm going to take it a step further, though. There will be many bad people that somehow will wake up in heaven because of the grace of Jesus Christ that made up for all the sin that was in their lives. Jesus addresses this a little bit different in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, when he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. There's a phrase that used to be used often. I've been cautioned not to use terms that other people don't understand. I think everyone in this group has heard this phrase all roads lead to Rome. Has anyone ever heard that? I have heard that for years. It's based on the fact that Rome was such a significant city. And as it grew, the Roman authorities were wise, building many roads so as to make travel to and from Rome something relatively easy. The idea was that if you, if you ever got lost in the wilderness, all you had to do was to find a road. And then if you followed that road, it would eventually lead you to Rome. Well, I almost imagine a funnel with many different streams of fluid, and they're all traveling to the same reservoir. But what if Rome is not your desired destination? 
course, when Jesus is speaking, he's not talking about Rome when he talks about the broad road or the narrow road. He's talking about heaven or hell. The wide gate leads to hell, while the narrow gate will lead to heaven. Jesus contrasts the narrow gate with the wide gate. And you get this idea of huge swarms of people crowding into a stadium, all hoping to get in to watch a game. But then you have this small door that's kind of off to the side, and nobody seems interested in going over there. But that small door leads to a tunnel where all the players are actually preparing for the game. And then you find that those who went through that small door actually come out onto the field. If you haven't already figured it out, the only way through the narrow gate, through the narrow path, is through Jesus Christ. There may be many who choose other paths, but that does not make those other paths right. There's only one way to heaven, and it is through Jesus. There are no other religions. There is no amount of goodness on your part that will put you on the right path. It is only through a right relationship with Jesus Christ. The problem for many of us is that we like the path that we are on. We've been on that path for so long that it seems comfortable and even right to us. But failure to jump on his path will eventually lead you to death. I know there may be a lot of other people that die with you, but I still would rather avoid it, wouldn't you? There's a biblical story of a man who was on the wrong path. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 22, and his name was Balaam. He was a prophet who was being paid to go and to speak prophetic words against the people of Israel. And I won't go into all the details of the story, but I will tell you that the Lord was very displeased with him. So as he journeyed to deliver this prophetic message, the angel of the Lord appeared ready to strike Balaam down. But Balaam doesn't see this angel. Realizing what is about to take place, Balaam's donkey would swerve off to the side. This actually happens on multiple occasions with Balaam becoming angry at his donkey and punishing him. Then in a narrow pass, having no place to turn, the donkey simply lay down, refusing to move forward. Again, Balaam becomes furious with his donkey and he says that if he had a sword on him, he would kill the donkey right there. After a brief conversation with the donkey, and I know that sounds weird, but that's what it says. After a brief conversation with the donkey, the angel of the Lord makes himself known to Balaam. I'm going to tell you, the moment that donkey began to speak, Balaam should have said, well, whatever happened, I'm sorry. But he doesn't get it, and all of a sudden, he sees the angel of the Lord. And at that moment, Balaam realizes that he, if he had stayed on his desired path, he would have died. I don't know what path you find yourself on today, but I do know that if you are not on the Lord's path, you will eventually die. You will find regret. I'm not just talking about your career path. I'm talking about the narrow path that you must be on to enter into heaven. Your current path may be comfortable, and there may be a huge crowd of people that are marching alongside you, but only one path leads to heaven, and that will always be through Jesus Christ. Well, the second thing that Jesus says is that I am the truth. It should be noted that Jesus 
said in John 8, 32, that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. He's actually talking about himself. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, Peter is talking about who Jesus was and it says that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. According to that verse, Jesus is the very definition of truth. Everything that he says and everything that he does reveals truth. He cannot lie for it goes against his nature. Contrast that to the rest of the world around us. Jeremiah twice speaks of this. Jeremiah 9, 6 says, You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. And later in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? According to Jeremiah, truth is against our normal human nature. I used to work with a guy. You could always tell when he was lying because his lips were moving. That is humanity. It is our nature to be deceptive. But we serve a God who is absolute truth. Well, finally, we see that Jesus also declares that he is the life. This should not surprise any of us as we know that it was God himself who breathed life into humanity way back in the book of Genesis. If you remember last week, I mentioned that God said, let us make man in our image, referencing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as such, Jesus can accurately say, I am the life. Without me, life doesn't happen at all. But I suggest to you that when Jesus says that he is the life, there is more to what he is saying. First, you should know that the Jewish people believed wholeheartedly that God's ability to breathe life into mankind went well beyond the creation story. Do you remember the story of Abraham as he was called to sacrifice his son for the Lord? Talk about a conflicted time for Abraham. This is his long-awaited son whom God had already promised that through his line, God would make a great nation, his offspring, his son, Isaac. But now, God is calling Abraham to strike down his son. I picture Abraham wrestling with how God could keep this promise while also wanting to walk in obedience to God. But as Abraham prepares to take his son to sacrifice, I want you to notice something. He takes a couple of servants with him. And in Genesis 22, verse 5, Abraham can see the place where he will sacrifice his son off in the distance. And so he says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. What does he mean by we will worship and then we will come back to you? I thought he was going to sacrifice his son when he got over there. Yet here there is this expectation that he will also return with his son. It would seem that Abraham very much believed that even if Isaac were to be killed, that God could restore him back to life. I guess the idea is that if God could breathe life into humanity at the beginning of time, 
then surely God could do it again, even if this son had already died. In fact, there's an interesting vision that is given to Ezekiel that helps to illustrate this. In Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 1, listen to it for a moment. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. That means they've been dead for a long time. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then skipping down to verse 11, we read, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Now, the first thing that I want you to see here today is when the Lord asks this question, can these bones live? The answer to that question is actually lost a little bit in translation. A literal translation would be, O sovereign Lord, you know. What Ezekiel is saying is, O Lord, I know who you are. You know that they can live again because you're the one who breathed life into humanity at the very beginning. Remember Philip being asked if he even knew who Jesus was? And here Ezekiel is declaring that I do know who you are. This is a confident response because he knows that there is nothing that God cannot do. I wonder this morning who needs to hear that. He's going through a very dry time a difficult time, a painful time, and you wonder if there is any hope, but there is nothing that my God cannot do. In the verses in between, we skipped a few verses. We see that those bones do live again. They begin to rattle, and the bones join back together, and the muscle and the tendons reform, and the skin rematerializes, and then breath is restored to them until a mighty army is standing there in front of Ezekiel. And then, so that we would clearly understand the purpose of this vision, we're told starting there in verse 11, I read that this is all about what God longs to do in his people. He longs to see them move from death into life. And I love the way it was worded in verse 13 and 14. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. There's a figurative and literal sense to this statement. First, God has already demonstrated on multiple occasions that he can restore life to those who are physically dead. Elijah did it. Jesus did it. Even the apostle Paul did it. We know that God can restore life to those who are physically dead. 
But it should not be lost on us that God has the power to restore life to those who are spiritually dead as well, which certainly connects to what is being said in this passage. But there's still another aspect of Jesus' statement that I am the life. You see, not only did God breathe life into humanity, not only did God have the ability to restore physical life, as we just mentioned, not only did God have the ability to restore those who were spiritually dead, but Jesus would be the one who would actually conquer death following the crucifixion. Therefore, once again, when he says, I am the life, this is a literal statement. And because of that, there is coming a day that the dead in Christ will rise from the grave. We too will overcome death, but it is only because of the fact that Jesus is the life. In fact, it was in John 11, 25 and 26 that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He is declaring that death will have no mastery over his followers. Remember that if you believe in him, you have eternal life. That means no death. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I declare to you today that only Jesus can give you life to the full. Well, I have one last thing I want to share with you this morning. I want you to consider the two extremes that are portrayed in Jesus and in sin. According to this passage, Jesus shows us the way. He is the truth and he grants us life. Now consider what sin brings. Sure, it can bring brief moments of pleasure, but it also creates confusion and regret. It causes us not to really know whether we're right side up or upside down. Sin is contrived by the master of deception. Remember that Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. He is a deceiver, constantly twisting the truth to say whatever causes the most confusion. And then sin also brings about death. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I wonder which will dominate your life, your love for him or your attraction to sin. Finally, I wonder if some of us have gathered an academic understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the only way. Yet we've yet to have that personal experience that I talked about at the very beginning. If that's you, and by the way, I'm not talking so much about those outside the church because to be honest with you, they're probably not listening to the message. I'm talking about those who are part of the church today. There are many in the church who if you ask them if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, they would say absolutely. But then they would live as if that were not true. Or the moment hardship came, they would turn on this one who was the way, the truth, and the life. I challenge you today to be a people that truly live like what you believe is really what you believe. I challenge you with three things to help make sure that happens. First of all, I believe that all of us are called to personal discipleship. 
If you are not growing in your walk with Christ, then something is wrong with your walk with Christ. You ought to be growing to become more like him. You ought to be spending time in his word. If you don't spend any time in his word, except for on Sunday morning when the pastor preaches, then something is wrong. You ought to be in his word on a regular basis. You say, well, I'm not, I'm not really disciplined at that. I guarantee you that if you loved a girl, I'm talking to the guys, if you loved a girl, you would do whatever it took to be with her. To the girls, if you loved a guy, you would do whatever it took to be with him. And if that meant reading some stupid book, you'd read it. That's definitely for the guys. The girls typically like to read. Sometimes the guys don't. I'll read it just because that's what you want me to do. Here's the deal. God loves you so much. He wants to be with you, and he's calling on you to read this book. I'm challenging you right now. Make that a part of your daily life. Spend time in his word. Second thing, spend time constantly in prayer. I think I had a... All right, this is an extreme example. I had an individual in my church in another place. I won't even say which city at that point. He was one of my leaders. He was a board member. And he said to me one day, he said, well, pastor, I don't read the Bible very much, but, but I pray a lot. And I think about spiritual things. I got to tell you, that's a, that's a red flag. See, here's the thing. You ought to be reading the Bible a lot and you ought to be praying, but you can't just do one or the other. You ought to be doing both. As children of God, we need to be in the Word of God, which reveals the heart of God, and we need to be in conversation with God. What a privilege it is for us to be able to communicate with Him and for Him to be able to communicate with us. Now, I'm going to challenge you with one last thing, and this is the more practical thing. It's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, I prayed today. Yeah, I read a little bit of Scripture. Allow God equal time in your day. You know, there's, there's so many of us that, like, I'm a sports guy. I could sit and watch three hours of football and not even think twice about it, not feel guilty at all. It's a great thing. But here's the thing. If I spend more than 20 minutes with the Lord in prayer, I feel like, wow, that was a long time. And the reality is, whatever I give to someone else, I ought to be able to give back to the Lord. Some of y'all wake up in the morning. The first thing you do is you go to Facebook. You know what? There, There can be good stuff out there on Facebook. But if that's the first thing you do, when do you give time for the Lord? Do you give time for the Lord too? I'll tell you, I cheat. I don't always uh, uh, just read. Actually, I, I listen every morning to, there's, I've told someone that I listened to Billy Graham yesterday, and the first thing I said, he's dead. <laughs> They're right. But I listen to the Billy Graham channel every day because it gives me something that is, it helps me with my day. I'm challenging you, give God equal time in your life. And when trials come, when you face difficulty, you won't have to face it alone because you'll already be in that right relationship with him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. I hope all of y'all, when that day comes, we will be welcomed into his presence. But until that day comes, let's lean on the way, the truth, and the life. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, we recognize that although we are a church, we are an imperfect people. And there are individuals in your body that maybe even today need to surrender some things to you, need to confess sin, need to come before you with a heart of repentance. Father, perhaps we have not given you the time that we ought to have given you. 
And I pray, first of all, for forgiveness. But I pray that from this moment forward, that you would equip us, that you would cause us to have such a hunger, a love for you, that we would not be satisfied with anything less than giving you our best. Father, I pray that you would give us a discipline to spend time in your word, to spend time with the body of Christ, and to spend time in prayer. And Father, I pray that when difficulty arises, because we know that one day it will, Father, I pray that we would be able to stand, not by our own strength, but because we stand alongside you. Father, I pray for your spirit to dwell in us. Maybe there are some of us here today and we're struggling with whether or not we even want to be a part of a church. Do we even want to be on this journey? There are other things that are pulling at us and trying to draw us away. Lord, I pray that you would hold us tight like the father of the prodigal son, wrapping his arms around his son, loving him so much. Father, I pray today that you would wrap your arms around us and that you would help us to recognize how much you intimately love us. Fill us with that same love for you. We'll give you praise for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that you are ready for the way, the truth, and the life to come back. We're going to be talking in the coming weeks. We talk about uh, there is one church, but there is also one day that is coming, that Jesus Christ will return. And when he does, I want to be ready. I want the rest of you all to be ready too. That's the purpose of this series. It's such a blessing to have you with us this morning. I hope you can go in peace. If you can, stick around for Sunday school. We'd love to have you. Thank you.